Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. We're here with Ian Black. As you probably know, we've had him on the channel before. And uh, I want to give a big shout out to Scott from Flying Graphics, who kindly gave me this uh, T-shirt, if you can maybe see, uh, with one of Ian's Mirage 2000 pictures on. So you can check them out at flyinggraphics.com if you want to pick one up. But uh, yeah, Ian, how are you doing, mate? I'm good, thanks, Mike. Yeah, and it's good to see you. And I can't believe it's four years since we met at Gatwick Aviation Museum. And, and since then, I think that was my first visit to the museum, or maybe my second or so, and it's become a regular, you know, every couple of months. It's, it's a fantastic location to meet people, to talk aviation, and I, I'm not <clears throat> doing a big um, publicity spiel for the museum, but it really is a great place to meet guys um, around our aircraft and, and do interviews and chats and photography and stuff. So, okay. yeah, that's become a bit of my second home, really. So, like, uh, in case our viewers haven't seen your, you know, your original interview and the clips we put up there, tell us a bit about your flying background and what you flew. So, I come from a flying uh, family. Uh, it, that sounds like a bit of a cliche phrase, I know. But uh, my father was uh, an RAF pilot. His father before that in the Second World War was on 111 Squadron, Trouble One Squadron, Hurricanes. Uh, I've never really found out exactly what he did. He, sadly, he wasn't a Battle of Britain pilot. He he was somewhere in Italy doing something, uh, and it might have been on 1435 flight as well. But I, I I must ask my father exactly what he did in the war. So my father joined uh, the Air Force National Service and flew an eclectic range of aircraft. So he flew um, Harvard, Meteor, Hunter, Vampire, exchanged on Seahawk. Then he flew the Lightning, which he was famous for in 1960-61, up until about 1970, he commanded three lightning units. He was a very well-known aerobatic display pilot. Did a lot of work uh, with the Red Arrows and the very original Red Arrows with Ray Hanna. Um, flew on the Battle of Britain flight as well. He commanded the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, and it was then known as the Memorial flight, I think. And he was the instigator to get the Lancaster into the Battle of Britain flight, which not many people know. Wow. Uh, it was languishing at uh, Waddington at the time, and he decided that <clears throat> they should amalgamate all these air, historic aircraft together. And so he was instrumental in getting the, the Lancaster to Coltishall. <clears throat> Once he'd done um, around about 1,200 hours in the Lightning and maybe 10 years of his service, the logical thing for him would have been to, and what he, I think what it, you know, in his heart of hearts, what he wanted to do is he wanted to go and be the station commander in uh, the Lightning base in Germany, Goodersloe, you know, lead that tax-free life, it would have been very simple. He could have flown the aircraft blindfolded. He'd never flown the F-2, and he would have loved to do that. However, um, he, was a, he was a bit of a high flyer, and they decided that he was the man that they needed to go and um, launch the, the Harrier into the V-style world and, and put it into the field, as it was called then, 
and he had a very, very difficult time introducing the, the, the Harrier to the RAF in its service. A lot of accidents, um, a lot of problems with the airframes, huge problems of, of the logistics of setting up, um, moving 30 or so Harriers into dispersed sites around Germany. And that was his his task, really, and his role to do that. And so he was, I think he was very, um, I wouldn't say disillusioned by what happened, but I don't think he got the credit that he deserved until uh, right at the very end. And in fact, uh, when the Harrier was withdrawn from service, the then station commander, Gary Waterfall, who was the crew captain at um, Cottesmore, he painted a GR7, which was, you know, and I, and I would, and I hope maybe Gary watches this, but um, one of my highlights of my life was to see that somebody had recognized my father as the the first person that put the Harrier into RAF service and they painted his name on the side. So Gary had his name on one side and his name was on the other side and it was painted in the old gray and green color scheme. And that to me was um, a, mark, a huge mark of respect to my father that he richly deserved. And then we went up there one day and it was very sad to see all these Harriers uh, you know, cocooned in a hangar waiting to be mothballed and sent to America. So that's, you know, if people read my Twitter feed and the banter I have with Harrier pilots or the respect I have, and that's probably why I have this respect for Harrier pilots, because my father was a very early Harrier pilot, and I've been involved with the Harrier world for the early part of my life when I was sort of between 12 and 18, I suppose, my father was involved in it. So that's why I have, a, I suppose, a bit of a, an affection to the Harrier. And strangely, though, when I when I left school, I joined the army, as we spoke earlier before the interview started, and I went to Santos, and I, but I never had a, a desire to fly the Harrier, strangely, even though my father had, and even though it was, you know, this fantastic revolutionary aircraft, I didn't want to fly the Harrier, maybe because I had that imposter syndrome that maybe I couldn't do it, or, you know, it was too difficult, and maybe I should stick to something simple like flying the Lightning. <laughs> so I left, I left the army, and they um, they managed. My father at the time was um, working at Eleven Group at Fighter Command, and our next door neighbour was a recruiting officer. So he said, "You know, can you get my son Ian, or you are to? I think is probably the, the phrase when a senior officer talks to you. He says, you, you know, you are to get my son Ian into the selection centre at Biggin Hill tomorrow.' So I, I had a week's leave. I went down to Biggin Hill. I did appallingly badly on the spatial aptitude or something, and I was totally unprepared for it. And, you know, I, I, I was watching something today from Balfour, the British Airline Pilot Association, and this lady, he was the secretary, and I'm being very polite, was basically telling people not to go into aviation now. And it just really got my heckles up because the thing about it is, is that I was totally unprepared, and I – put my hand up and I admit to that now that I didn't know what was coming and what I should have done was prepared myself and you know you're going to talk to people and ask people what do you have to do and had I done that subsequently which I found out that it might have been simple so I went to Biggin Hill totally unprepared and lo and behold they came back and said you know you, you haven't got the aptitude to be a pilot however you do have the aptitude to become a navigator now on reflection without bigging myself up, I find it slightly strange that becoming a navigator requires some fairly serious mental agility, which I wasn't particularly good at. So I'm not quite sure why I got offered navigator. Maybe I had a bad day. But <laughs> as I said, it's all to do with being prepared and knowing what's coming, isn't it? Of like, you know, I've done hours of work for this interview. You know, I've done all the research. I know all the questions. I know what's coming. So 
I'm totally unprepared. I even had to redress my study for you. So I, I, I got offered Navigator, and at the time I was desperately unhappy at Sandhurst. I did not enjoy it. And I just said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll, um, I'll go. And I went into the sergeant major's office. And I remember, you know, one of those sort of Kodachrome moments you have in your life where you remember every single vivid minute. And I, I knocked on the door, and I was in my tracksuit, as you always were at Sandhurst. And he came in, and he said, said yep, what do you want, Black? And I said, well, I, I've, I've come to resign. I want to go and join the Air Force. And he said, what? And he said, no, no you, you, can't, you can't join the Air Force. He said, you're our best cadet. He said, you know, you're going to win the sword of honor here, and you're going to win all these prizes. You're going to be this fantastic officer, and you're going to do so well. You know, you can't leave. And I went, oh, okay, right. And I saluted, and I walked out, and I shut the door. And I walked outside, and I went, hang on. No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to stay here and win the Sword of Honor. I want to go and be a navigator on Phantoms. And he, so I I knocked back on the door and I said, can I come in? He said, yep, what is it? He said, look, I I really am not joking, Sergeant Major. I want to leave the Army. I want to join the Royal Air Force. And he went, right, that's it. He said, you're hopeless anyway. You'd never win anything. Get out. Off you go. (laughs) (laughs) So I left. And the only positive side was that I had – I was credited, I think, three months of seniority. So I always leapfrogged everybody else, and I became a, a, a acting pilot officer, and a full pilot officer, and a flying officer three months early. So I went to the, the RAF, did um, officer training, and I did. I won the Sword of Honor. And without having a prop or anything here, uh, this is what you get. You get a little tiny um, silver, probably plated sword, oh, and okay. a little... Uh, black thing, which must be 30, 40 years old now, and you can put your pencil in it, and that's what you win. So my father was um, obviously extremely proud of me, winning the Sword of Honor at um, officer training, and off I went to Henlow. Uh, oh, sorry, off I went to Finningley after Henlow. I don't remember I don't remember holding anywhere or doing any of the stuff that people do nowadays. I went to Finningley, and I was with a very academic uh, course of guys. I think there was about 10 of us, we're all pretty um, broad brush in terms of some people have been to Oxford, some people have been to Cambridge, some have come straight from school. Uh, one of the, the guys, Jerry Uren, he he was he looked younger than me. He looked about 15. Uh, other guys looked incredibly old, like 23, 24, because they'd been to Cambridge or Oxford and they, they had their own cars and things, and, and we did. Impossible. So we set up. Yeah, so, you know, I didn't even have a moped in those days. I was like... I can't remember what I had, but we set off on the on the course, and it was incredibly academic. And it was just at the transition where the varsity aircraft had been gone, I don't know, maybe five or ten years. The Domini was still there, but it was still um, very traditional. You know, we did astro shots. We did moon shots and all this sort of stuff. And I think wow. maybe one of those didn't go. And you had to get this, um, what are they called, an astro um yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know what they're called yet, yeah, but I know what you mean. Or something. Yeah. It's not, somebody will write in and say it's not an astroscope, but it's some device that's like something out of a, um, an Avro Lancaster, and you, you depressurize it, and you put it up, and you, and you get some sort of scopes, like you know, being in Das Boat, and you do a, a star shot, and then you get this huge book of tables and algorithms, and you work it all out, and you go, wow, I'm, I'm over Beachy Head or something. And, of course, you're not, but it's <laughs> a very, very difficult way of navigating it. So you, you did that, and then I got streamed to go. Uh, no, I think you did. You did the Domini bit. Then you went to the Jet Provost, and you did a bit of low-level navigation, <clears throat> and then came the big 
the big sort of deciding point where they said, you're either going to go fast jet or you're going to go to be a truckie now on Hercs or VC-10s or something. And that was really uh, the first time, I suppose, in my life where I had this feeling of, wow, you know, if I end up getting sent to Group 2, which was um, transports, what am I going to do? Because I don't want to go there. Um, but going to Group 1 also meant you could go to Canberra's as a navigator or Shackleton's or Vulcan's. So there were things in there that weren't quite so glamorous. And actually, as a, a fast jet navigator, from memory, you only had Shackleton, Canberra, Vulcan, Buccaneer, and Phantom. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was find the Phantom. So had I gone to the Buccaneer, I'd have still been desperately upset because it meant going to Lossiemouth and flying over the sea, which I did not want to do. And the only other one was going to the Canberra. And that was like, well, you're not good enough to go to the Buccaneer or the Phantom, but you're not bad enough to go to the Shackleton, so you're probably going to go somewhere in between. And you knew yeah. that you'd go to the Canberra, spend three years there, hanging around. Then you go to the Phantom or the Buccaneer. So eventually you get there. So I did the I did the low-level nav uh, phase, got selected to go Group 1, <clears throat> and then you go back to the Jet Provost and you go back to the Domini. And again, it was very, very difficult. You were sat, like I am now, backwards in a Domini, looking at a little tiny radar, which was about this sort of size, and you were looking at this, um, it was called an Echo 190, and it was an orange radar display, and you had a cursor that went across it like this, and it swept left and right, and you had to look at your map and basically make a, a radar, I think it's called an RMAP or something, radar map prediction of what the uh, either the coastline or the hills or the valleys would look like as a radar return, and then try and navigate your way. Now, if you're going to somewhere like Flamborough Head, which sticks out like a a witch's hat or some other part of a witch, you know, it's very easy to put a cursor on it and then back plot that in the range of distance, work out exactly where you are. If you're flying through Wales, through the valleys, there might be a valley which heads north and then bends round to the east and you've got a little promontory and you can know that's exactly where you are. But trying to do that at low level without looking out the window. Christ, even, yeah. even if you do look out the window and try and cheat, you're going backwards. At yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got streamed to get Phantoms. And that was one of the very, very first courses where they had just just introduced the Hawk to Brody, but uh, they still had the Hunter T7 and the Hunter FGA9 and F6 there, but they had Hawks there for ab initio pilots. So all the Hunters did all the, the refresher training and the Hawks did ab initio pilots. And they decided in their wisdom, which is a very good idea, that you know, all these guys would go off in a two-seat Hawk because there were so many previously single-seat hunters, why not put a baby navigator in the back? Well, they didn't actually put us, I don't think they actually, I think the original idea was if you had Pilot Officer Jones and he was streamed to go Phantoms, then put Pilot Officer Smith as a navigator in the back of a hawk and then off they go together. Mm-hmm. But it never quite worked like that because yeah. they never trusted Pilot Officer Jones to yeah. fly with a baby navigator. So, you know, it, it was... Strange that two months later they'd let you go off and fly in a Mac 2 Phantom, but they wouldn't let you fly together in a Hawk. But <laughs> it, at least all of a sudden, you know, you thought you were the the ace of the base, wearing your little leg restraints on a, a Jake Provost Mark V, click clocking around, and then you go to Broadie and you get a G suit and you fly an airplane that can pull 9G, and then you suddenly realise that you're not the ace of the base at all because <clears throat> the other leveller is, and again, I'm not decrying navigators, but you reach the pinnacle of your navigation training and they say to you, right, you're posted to phantoms. 
and you think you're the best person in the world, you know, you, you've reached the, the top of your pinnacle and you get to Broadie and you meet a guy who is six months ahead of you in the Air Force, but he's a pilot. And all of a sudden you're getting in a, in a formation and watching this guy flying his hawk around at low level with his two snap cans and his sidewinders. Yeah. And you're the paper map and you're sort of going, mm, okay, well maybe I'm not, not quite the ace of the base yet. So again, I'm not decrying backseaters, but it was a bit of a leveler to me to think that, you know, I'd reached this pinnacle and I thought, wow. And I looked at these other guys who were 20 and I thought, mm, I've still got a long way to go. You know, they were doing the briefing, getting the aircraft, leaving the formation, flying around in bad weather, getting bounce, doing combat. And I'm thinking, mm. but one day I thought, you know, hopefully I would get there. So I did the course. I went to the Phantom OCU, which again, I found incredibly difficult. I, I found the ground school, uh, I found the ground school incredibly taxing in, in terms of the amount of knowledge they wanted you to know from memory so uh, there was you know you had flight reference cards and you had memory drills but pretty much they wanted you know how the airplane worked back to front <clears throat> which i always found that was a side of my aviation skills that i was never very and probably still am not very good at is retaining that knowledge of how an f4 works or a lightning works or a, a mirage works and <clears throat> the the phantom ocu then was some huge great unit that had airplanes from the letter a to the letter Z. So they must have had 26 or so, um, two or three courses. But we never flew. We, you know, we. I look at my logbook and I flew something like the 3rd of October, and then it would be the 18th of October, and then the 27th of October, and it was literally, you know, every week or two weeks, and then there'd be a big, you know, burst of maybe two or three trips. And being a navigator, of course, the pilots had to do um, the initial convex one, two, three, or four. Then they do an instrument rating test and do a night check. So they were always doing pretty much twice what a navigator was doing. And from a navigator's point of view, there, were, there weren't there were many trips that you did which didn't involve you getting the radar out. So the instrument rating test that you, where you went off and flew with a pilot and did a practice diversion, you didn't take the radar out much then. But you, there wasn't much you could do in the early phase of the, the course until you went on to intercepts. And then you started doing what they call you know, bread and butter, medium-level intercepts, where you would do... 180 by eights and 150 degree attacks and 120 and 90 degree attacks at medium level. Then you went down to low level, but there was no evasion. And then there was a combat phase. So it was very, very basic on the F4SU, but still very demanding. And I looked at my logbook a couple of days ago and I, I literally did, I don't, I don't know, 25 hours or so. And the last sortie I did, you know, first time radar failed, second time the camera on the radar failed, third time something went wrong with the airplane. And I think the very last sort they just said, oh, you know, you've passed, it's all right, off you go. But I felt very under-equipped and ill-prepared to go to Germany. Having left Coningsby, which is Sleepy Hollow on the East Coast, you know, in the UK defence region, to pack your car with your little green bag of helmet, life preserver, G-suit, drive to Germany, and all of a sudden, literally like out of some Man Alive film, you know, and I, I suppose I was reasonably lucky that I'd lived in Wildenrath for three or two years as a child. So it wasn't you know, totally strange to me. But you rock up at the main gate and the blokes there with a pistol and a rifle and the IRA were pretty prevalent then. Okay. 
and you know you ID and they check your car for a bomb underneath. You go to the officers' mess and everyone's around there and they're all very operational and punchy and they haven't got their badges on their flying suit because they want to be tactical. <clears throat> so you you rock up there and then the first day I arrived on the squadron was Carnival Day. And one of the older navigators, or he seemed old, then he's about 28, Peter Gilmore, who'd come off Shackleton's, he sort of said, right, come with me. You're not going to go to the squadron to, to arrive today. You're doing the carnival. And it was a bit like something out of Animal House, which later became our sort of trademark film. But, you know, five hours later, I was deposited back at Bildenrath, completely inebriated with about, I don't know, 10 pints of strong German beer inside me, mm-hmm. feeling absolutely dreadful, no idea what was going on at all. And he thought this was very amusing, as did the rest of the squadron. And I went to bed that night and thought, you know, I really feel bad. And the next morning at half past eight, I had to go and have my initial interview with the station commander. And I just managed to get my number ones on. And I just managed to get out of bed. And I sat in his office and I looked, I probably was white as a sheet. And he gave me this huge lecture about the problems of drink and about how the airmen can drink too much. And you've got to set an example. And you mustn't get drink. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm actually going to be sick any minute now. <laughs> I'm going to throw up. And I was just so hungover and so ill. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, this is not a good start to my tour in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to the squadron, obviously, that day. And there's a mass of you know, forms you have to fill in and you have to go around every unit on the station and get your gas mask and your <laughs> chemical warfare suit. And then you have to go to the simulator and do a sim, which is at Bruggen. And then off you go and do your first flight. And, you know, I probably hadn't flown a Phantom for three weeks or so. So I was absolutely hopeless. You know, I, I couldn't remember how to align the inertial and you had to get in the front seat and do checks in the front and then get into the back. And it was all very, very laborious. But I think you maybe got one what was called a Famil flight. And I flew with it. I think it was a, a guy who later became a test pilot on my first trip. And we just did this navigation exercise. And I was, you know, had my map out and then I was trying to work out where we were. And I'd never flown no level in Germany before. And yeah, it was big, big boy stuff and a big learning oh, curve. Imagine. Then I got um, crewed up with my pilot, a guy called Andy Neal, who was about five foot three. And his nickname was Knickknack. And he, he was about the punchiest small man you could ever meet. And, you know, he's a brilliant pilot and a brilliant instructor. But, boy, he didn't take any prisoners. You know, anything you did wrong, you know, he would tear you off a strip straight away. Yeah, even yeah. a foot shorter than me. But a, a fantastic guy to fly with. You know, I learned, you know, a huge amount with him. Became operational and, you know, jumping ahead. And then got crewed up with the, the squadron boss, uh, which was, a, you know, a huge privilege because the squadron bosses were normally not very sharp or didn't fly very much. And to get crewed up with him was was quite an honour. So I flew with a guy called Reg Hallam, who was the squadron boss, and he was a fantastic test pilot, cool as a cucumber, very laid back, very old school. And again, you know, I learned a massive, massive amount about flying from him, you know, that nothing's nothing's ever really, you know, that serious that's going to cause you concern to actually break out into a sweat. Absolutely. And, you know, he, he was the the coolest guy I've ever flown with, I think. And I once said to him, you know, what was, in all the flying you've ever done, what was the most alarming, scary, nerve-wracking moment you've ever had? And this is a guy who flew javelins, he flew phantoms. He was the boss of the Empire Test Pilot mm-hmm. School. So you imagine that he's done all sorts of things oh, yeah. in his career. And I expect him to say, well, you know, I got into a spin, I couldn't get out of a spin, and, you know, I recovered at 200 feet. He said, oh, and he thought about it. He said, he said, I think the worst thing that ever happened 
was flying in a Shackleton and I had a chip pan fire in the galley. And he said, I, I looked back and said, and I looked down the galley and there was a pan of chips on fire. And he said, you know, that, that was pretty serious. And I've always kept that in my, my memory That's because brilliant. when you think about it, actually, it is pretty serious. It's pretty know, serious, yeah. A fire <laughs> inside the aircraft with a pan of chips. Absolutely, uh, yeah. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't what you'd expect in an engine fire or an electrical problem or something like that. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, so, Ian, what did you do after your Phantom tour? Well, I, I, I was on a three-year tour, and I was on a thing called a short-service commission, so I knew I had eight years in the Air Force, and I knew at the end of Germany <clears throat> my options were probably to go to the weapons instructor course and then be a QY, uh, a qualified weapons instructor, and then go to a Lucas squadron or a Wadersham or somewhere. And pretty early on, I'd always um, tried to engineer, having spoken to my father, how could I become a pilot? And the first year I flew in Germany, it was great fun. The second year, I was learning everything like a sponge, and the third year, I felt very vulnerable and sitting in the back seat because I knew I wanted to be a pilot. So I, I, you know, I, I think I've written a couple of books, but I flew with a station commander guy called John Allison, who's a very famous pilot. <clears throat> and I was always happy to fly with anybody, really, whereas other people weren't. Um, so off we went on a very poor visibility day, almost had a mid-air collision, and I managed to save the pair of us, as it were, without sounding too dramatic. <laughs> I could tell you the whole story, but it would take up a whole interview. And he obviously was impressed with me. And he said, well, you know, if you want to go and be a pilot, I'll back you. And so I had the backing of the station one, I had the backing of my father, and I became a pilot. Um, the, the pilot training bit, you know, is outside the scope of this interview. But at the end of it, I became a lightning pilot, which is going to be short-lived because the lightning only had less than two years left to go in service. And I, I guess it was very lucky that I got the lightning with so long to go. They, they probably could have kept guys on it, but they were at that time thinking that, we were going to be the next generation of Eurofighter pilots, but that never really happened. So I, I flew the Lightning for two years, went to the Tornado and did all the stuff on the Tornado that you know I could possibly do. And the natural thing then was either to <clears throat> go to the Red Arrows or go to the Weapons Course or do an exchange tour. I, I've flown with the Red Arrows quite a few times, and much as I love you know what they do and everything, it wasn't really for me because I had a passion for flying fast jets and doing operational stuff. And I also had a passion for photography. And I just knew that if I was in the Red Arrows, I wouldn't be flying with my left hand and taking a picture with my right hand. And they'd probably get very annoyed with me. So I, I knew that was not for me, really. And I applied for, well, I think at the time there was various options. Um, there was going to America to fly the F-15, going to Norway to fly the F-16, a few Norwegian, Dutch, F-4 at uh, Wittmannhaven or the Mirage 2000 and a few other strange things. But the, the exchange tours are only um, type-specific. So the Draken exchange in Denmark was a Harrier pilot. So he went and flew the Draken. Right. Um, the F-15E exchange pilot was a Tornado GR pilot. The F-117 pilot was a GR pilot. So as an air defense pilot, I really had the F4F at Wimmenthaven, the F16 in Holland at Leeuwarden, or the F16 at Uerland uh, with the Norwegian Air Force, or the Mars 2000, and probably the F15C at Tindall or Luke or somewhere. And I thought, well, from what I'd heard, going to America was the easy option. You, you spoke English and you could fly the F15, which would be great. 
but I wanted to go and you know broaden my as aspects of things and, and learn a language which the Air Force taught you. And Dutch, I didn't think, was a great language to learn uh, for the future. And living in the south of France on the Marais 2000 seemed like the best option. So that's what I plumped for and plumped or plumped plum for and. I, I sort of lied a bit and said I spoke colloquial French, which was completely untrue. I could order a beer. <laughs> and when I got the exchange store, I was very apprehensive, thinking, wow, I've got to learn to fly the Marais 2000, and I've also got to learn to be fluent in French. And they give you a – at the time, there was a, a, a language school where all the spies went to North Luffenham. But that was all sort of folding up. So I went as a guinea pig to Cambridge and had pretty much a one-on-one – uh, with myself and another guy who was going to go and fly the, um, uh, no, it wasn't the Fuga magazine, he went to fly the PC-9 at Salon, and I was going to go to the Mirage 2000. So we learned the language, and it was a very, very long, protracted course learning to, to speak a different language in the Air Force. And once I had done the language course, I then went to tour, and I lived with a, a, a geriatric French family and immersed myself there for a month. Then I had to go to another course, and finally, I got to tour airbase uh, to fly the Alpha Jet, <clears throat> and that you know it's not part of the scope of this interview as well. But you know that has, again was just mind blowing. If you ever want to completely saturate your head with information, put yourself in a foreign country, speaking a different language that you don't really speak very well, and then on day one they put you in the simulator in the front seat of the aeroplane and say off you go, and in the afternoon they put you in the back seat and say right off you go. You're, you're off to go and do a 2v2 combat against Mirage F1s, which I did. And I was sat in the back of this uh, Alpha jet, and the guy in the front was a general. And he was a guy called an Abonnet, and they're like learners, but they're officers that go to the staff college who then once a month come back and fly the Alpha jet, and then they go back to the staff college to keep current. And I always remember, I'm sat in the back of this Alpha jet. I couldn't understand what was going on. It was all in French. And we were up at about 38,000 feet. We were all contrailing. And the next thing we saw were two mirages, and I just said to him, break right, because this mirage was pitching in behind us. So he broke right as hard as we could, and the next thing I knew, we were in a fully developed spin. Wow. And the aeroplane departed, and so I'm, my head's banging against the side of the canopy, and I'm looking down, and it's 8 8 clouds, I can just see the horizon spinning around, and my lasting memory was thinking, this is going to be really good, this is my first trip in the French Air Force, and I'm going to have to eject. I'm actually now in an alpha jet. I'm completely out of control. I'm with a guy in the front who's probably flying once a month. And I could hear him over the microphone breathing, going, <gasps> yeah. as he was trying to get recovery back of the aircraft. And eventually the airplane just sort of naturally flopped out of the spin and off we went. And I thought, well, that's, you know, good good trip one. That's an interesting start. So I did that, that um, alpha jet immersion, which, again, was, you know, I didn't really learn an awful lot there, and then went to Dijon where the Mirage OCU was. And I haven't looked at my logbook, but, you know, I literally flew three or four flights, all in French, uh, all the ground schools in French. I eventually managed to find um, a, uh, I think the Americans call it a Dash 1, or it's an aircrew manual for the Mirage 2000 uh, in a secret cabinet. And it was the um, English translation of the Mirage 2000 for the Qatari Air Force. Nice. So I quickly... Stole that from a secret cabinet, found a photocopy, and made my own photocopy. Otherwise, I'd have had no idea how the Mirage 2000 worked. And started doing the course. All the briefings were in French. All the sorties were in French. Flying out of Dijon, we used to go to a little place called Dole and do ILSs there and a bit of instrument work. 
And I literally must have had, I don't know, three or four flights, and that was it. And then I got sent down to Orange, and your first solo in the single-seater, because I didn't have single-seaters in, in Dijon, was at Orange. And I arrived on the squadron in the morning, didn't know anybody. I think the RAF guy who was ahead of me, he was the first guy to fly the Mirage 2000, he'd left, so he wasn't there to hold my hand. So I literally walked into the squadron, everyone spoke French, I was there, and I looked up on the ops board, and I must have got there for half past seven for an 8.30 start or something, and on the ops board, the first sortie of the day was Black and Smith. And I thought, well, it's like the Air Force, you know, they're going to try and wind me up here, and they'll make me lead a sortie. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to sort of lose face here and, and go, oh, just trying to wind me up, this is a bit of a joke. I'll just run along with it, I'll play with it. So... I sort of, okay, blacksmith, 1v1 combat. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. So off we go. And I sort of said to the guy, you know, is there any briefing slides? And, yeah, so I'll just keep running with this joke they're going to play on me. And I sort of cobbled together some sort of brief, goodness knows how, because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And the guy, Smith, who happened to have an English name, was French, but he spoke a bit of English. He spoke English quite well. And I, I got to the stage where we were signing out the aircraft and there was a Mistral that day, so it was a 45-knot wind. And I thought, well, very soon they're all going to come in and laugh and, you know, joke's on us and it's all over. And I signed the aircraft and he said, right, okay, let's go to the hangar. I signed for the aircraft and I walk out to this single-seat rise I'd never flown before in my life. Wow. And I thought very soon they're all going to come around the corner and surprise, you know, it's a joke. Yeah. And I got strapped in and nobody came around and then I did all the checks that I could do. And uh, went on the radio, and he was there, and we started up. And I thought, hmm, maybe this isn't a joke. So I shut the canopy and taxied out, and we both taxied out together. And I remember <clears throat> distinctly that in the head-up display, it only worked at something like 50 knots or something. So when you were taxiing out, if you don't, weren't doing 50 knots, it didn't show. But I remember the wind was so strong that day, it was showing 50 knots. I thought, wow, wow. this is 50 knot wind. So we took off, and I think uh, I'm, I, I was leading him, which was very strange. I didn't know where I was going or what I, what I was doing. We went out over the, the Mediterranean Sea, and we set up in the in the combat area for visual combat. And we stood out with turn to combat go, which I led. In was turn go, and we turned inbound. And I hadn't a clue what I was doing. And lo and behold, he gunned me three times. And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and we reached a certain fuel level. And I thought, well, we better return back to Orange now. And the GCI came on the radio and said, no, no, Orange is um, it's too windy there. You've got to divert to East Ray. And I'm thinking, well, where the heck's East Ray? You know, I, I didn't really know where that was. So I managed to get my map out and find where East Ray was. And we landed. And I taxied in and I thought, hmm. That was a fairly exciting arrival on the squad. I'd never flown a single-seater. It was in a foreign country. I was leading it. We were doing combat on my very first trip, you know, proper full-on air-to-air combat. And um, then we divert. So we diverted, and I shut down, and my airplane had a problem. So we were sat there the whole day while the wind um, calmed down. And eventually they sent a two-seater. And, you know, the sounds of time, I've forgotten why it happened, but it ended up that it was five o'clock at night. It was around about January, so it was getting dark. There was a two-seater there and a single-seater, and the deputy squad boss turned up, and he said, right, Ian, he said, we're going to um, fly back <clears throat> together, and we're going to land at Orange. So he, he gets this briefing sheet out, and he starts briefing, 
and he says, you know, you know, d'accord, d'accord, meaning, you know, you okay, you understand, you know, tu compris? And I went, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So I just sort of nodding at yes, yes, yes to everything. And I get into the single-seater, which I've never flown solo either. So I make sure the back seat is all strapped up. I get in the single-seater on my own. He tacks up. He's leading me. So he gets on the end of the runway, this huge runway at Eastray. And he said, we're going to do a 30-second stream or 15-second stream. He lets the brakes off. We let the brakes off and plugs in the afterburner. Huge, great ball of flame comes out the back. Off he goes. I tap my stopwatch, look at my watch and go, right, 15 seconds let the brakes off. And as I look ahead, he literally does like a lightning and puts it into this vertical wow. climb. So I thought, well, I, you know, I better do the same thing. So I got a headboard, put the undercarriage up, and then just pulled as hard as I could. Now, looking back on it, I can't have been very high off the ground. But, and again, this thing just snapped into the vertical. I sort of staggered away in the vertical, and then I had to try and find him. Eventually, I found him. And then off we headed to the Alps. And it's almost pitch black now. And I'm sort of trying to find him. I can see his nav light on the wing. And I sort of come into sort of loose, close formation on him. <clears throat> and we whiz around the Alps and we do something. I can't remember what we did. And by the time we come back to Orange, it is absolutely pitch black. So I've never done a dual check at night. I've never flown a Mirage 2000 at night. Now I'm on my own in a two-seater landing at night. So I land, taxi in, and then all the squadron are there ready to meet me, and they've got champagne and everything. And there's a tradition in the French Air Force, and I haven't got it with me, but they give you what's called a pin, and it's a little metal badge. And on the back of it, you have your PL number, which is a, a patrie leader, I think it is, and I'm number 145. So I'm number 145 operational pilot on the EC25 mm -hmm. Ile de France. And they give you that, and it's in the bottom of the jar, and I didn't know that, and I almost swallowed it. And then you have that on your uniform. And I'm thinking, wow, that's day one. You know, I've, I've been solo in a single-seat Mirage. I've led a sortie. I've diverted. I've flown a two-seat Mirage solo, and I've been night current all in one. That oh would take three months in the Air Force to do. And I now I'm operational because the way they look at that, you know, if you've been an operational pilot before, well, you've got to be operational. So yeah. there's no backup. I am now a fully operational day-night qualified Mirage 2000 pilot in one day. What what was the power difference like uh, taking off and reheat compared to the tornado, phantom, and lightning? To be totally honest, you know, if you flew in a a phantom, I don't recall when you let the brakes off. Apart from when it was clean wing, there wasn't there was a bit of a kick. The lightning, if you flew the single seat Mark III lightning, when you took off, you you normally took off in dry power. If you took off in reheat, then you really knew about it, and there was a huge kick in the tornado F three. It was all very smooth and very clinical because you didn't rock the throttles outboard. You just you went to the the end stop and then you selected combat power. Yeah. It was a bit of a kick. And again, you know, if you had a light F three with no tanks on, no missiles or anything, then there was a pretty big kick there. The Mirage two thousand was only one engine, so that makes a makes a big difference. But in the Mirage two thousand, which is different from Air Force aircraft, is you have a thing called a JX. So it actually gives you, for the temperature of the day and the Q&H and stuff, it gives you exactly what thrust you should have. Right. So if you have, I think it was like 0.58 or something, if you have 0.58 and you're in full afterburner, you know that's what the thrust you should get, should be getting and that's what you get. The, the difficulty in the Mirage 2000 was in British aircraft, if you do a formation takeoff, so you're uh, using my models now, so if you are doing a formation takeoff and this is the leader and he lets his brakes off. He then will select reheat, but he won't select full reheat. 
because if he gives you, if you say four reheat and you've got nothing to catch up on him, so he selects sort of two thirds reheat in the Air Force, and that then gives you the chance that if he accelerates away, then you've got a bit of power to, to get in there. And in the Air Force, we, we use a, a term, or we used a term when I was there called buster, which meant that you were, you know, you, you couldn't get any more power or give me some more or something or drop back. I can't remember what the phrases were. But on the Mirage 2000, you engaged reheat, but you couldn't modulate it from what I remember. So the, the lead guy would engage reheat, but maybe come back a little bit. But then if he came back too much, it would drop out of reheat. So the lead guy would set off, and then you would, you know, if you drop back, you, you couldn't you couldn't put on more power because mm. he already come back a bit and you just overtake him. And I remember one time, you know, I, I'd taken off. I didn't want to come back because it would drop out of reheat and then I'd come right back and it would be pretty dangerous. So right. I end up taking off and then putting air brake out, which is very strange, just to hold the position. And I yeah. think that was early on before I worked out what was going on. But in terms of thrust, the Mirage 2000 was, um, you know, that there's, P-52 engine is extremely powerful, but uh, and it's great when it's light, but jumping ahead slightly, you know, you've got this delta wing, so you, you might have a whole lot of excess energy and thrust, so as soon as you do this hard turn, you lose it all. You'll do a, a back turn, but you'll go from 400 to 200 knots like that. So it's, <clears throat> it's relative, I guess, between a twin-engine aircraft and single-engine aircraft, and that's always the, um, I guess, the sort of, the crux of aerodynamics of you know whether you build an aircraft with one engine, one big engine, or two smallish engines like the Typhoon's got the EJ200, but they're both really powerful engines. <laughs>